Paul's letters. Instead, he turns his attention in verse 17 to what? To, to his disfigured frame. Right? I bear on my body you know, the stigmata, the scars of Jesus. And it's on that somber, rather, that trenchant note that the curtain drops. Right? That's, and, that, and it largely ends right there. Right? No warm fuzzies. All right, so Paul, so, so what gives? Well, he wants there in these last verses to be no confusion. The issues at stake throughout this letter, they're not minor quibbles of doctrine, but actually two entirely different religions. Entirely different religions. And so when he opens in verse 11 and says, see with what large letters that I'm writing to you with my own hand, what he's attempting to do there is grab us by the collar. Right? Shake us to attention. Now, typically, a letter would be, would be dictated to an amanuensis, and, and that individual would copy it down. And then the one doing the dictation, the author, would merely authenticate the letter by putting his signature at the end of it. We see that in 1 Corinthians and Colossians, 2 Thessalonians. That was Paul's normal practice. But here, notice what Paul does. Paul butts in. He says, okay, amanuensis, you just... Take a step aside, aside, right? take your quill with you. I'm grabbing a fat Sharpie, and I'm going to write now on my own. And I'm going to make sure that this is not missed. Right? He's trying to summon all his apostolic authority. He's in these last verses cashing in on every pastoral chip that he has with these individuals. And his basic message is that being faithful to Jesus will require us to bear the marks of Jesus. That's largely what he's teaching here in these closing verses. To be faithful to Jesus requires us to bear the marks of Jesus. And again, what's brought to the forefront is the central issue of the cross of Christ. Right? It is, again, we see the great divide. That ocean which separates all men into two opposing continents. For these Jerusalem interlopers, the cross is the cause of persecution. Notice there in verse 12, they would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted. Why? For the cross of Christ. And yet their offense, the cross, is Paul's boast, verse 14. But far be it for me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's saying you boil it all down. The issue at the center of this divide the issue that really separates all true religion from false religion is the cross of Christ. Paul's saying that somehow the death of a no-name Jewish carpenter some 2,000 years ago, a man who never attended an elite university, never elected to political office, a man who never commanded an army, was never awarded a prize or held a respectable post, a man whose adult life never ventured further than Fort Smith. This man, somehow his death changed the world. Well, how is that possible? How is that possible? I think this text helps us see three things about true religion that Paul wants these Galatians to know, would like us to know. Three things about true religion in contrast to false religion. And the first thing I think we see, the first thing we see is that true religion is not physical, but spiritual. 
First thing we see, true religion is not physical, it is rather spiritual. So Paul's contrasting in these verses what he's preached with what these Judaizers preached. Because for them, religion is it's all about the physical, about the external, right? Verse 12, what do they want? They want to make a good showing in the flesh, right? They want to make, in other words, in other words they want to make a good impression, a good impression. It's all about appearances. It's putting on a good show. And the physical expression of all that show, that was circumcision. That was their rallying cry. We've read earlier from Acts 15.1, they would have said something like, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. They invested a kind of sacramentalism in the rite of circumcision, right? It took on a salvific significance, not unlike baptism in the Roman Catholic Church or even in the Church of Christ. And Paul's saying, no, 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 it's not that. It's faith alone that saves, Faith alone that saves. If you add anything to it, faith plus something physical, something external done to us by us, well, you've either done by us or done to us, you've, you've actually walked away from true religion. That's the way of false religion. False religion, it substitutes the physical for the spiritual. Right? Rosaries and Hail Marys, mandatory prayers and trips to Mecca, that's what it defines to be religious for these Judaizers, so to speak. It's, it's not about an inward change of heart. It's about the external, about the outward. But notice Paul's concern. His concern isn't for circumcision. His concern, rather, is for a new creation. Look down with me to verse 15. He'll say, For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. Which if you stop and think about Paul and you think about his background, that's a remarkable statement for Paul to make. A remarkable statement. I mean, for, circumcision, for the Jews, circumcision was the defining mark of what it meant to be Jewish and had been that way for thousands of years. That's how Paul grew up. That's how he was raised. That's what he valued. So to summarily dismiss it that easily, that's just unthinkable. That would be blasphemous to Jews. And yet, the cross has changed Paul's thinking so profoundly that he can say, you know what, something like circumcision, uncircumcision, as a theological matter, it doesn't finally matter unless you make it necessary for salvation. It doesn't finally matter. Romans 2, 28, 29. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. Oh, friends, this should be a warning to us individually, as individuals. If our Christianity, if your Christianity is more about outward appearances than it is about inward change, if you're tempted perhaps to measure modesty more by what you look like, than by what you think about. If you measure your holiness more by what you avoid rather than what you love, Paul's saying, you've, if not transgressed, you've become dangerously close to substituting true religion for false religion, the physical for the spiritual. And yet I think it's also a good warning to us as a church. Notice in verse 13 that 
these false Jewish teachers desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. Right? In other words, these Judaizers, they wanted to wag their mouths that they had brought in all of these Gentile proselytes. They brought them into the Jewish fold. They wanted numbers that they could go back to Jerusalem and to their home denominational office and report some good numbers. That's what they wanted to do. All right, but we've, we too also have to be wary as a church of placing our hopes in the physical and not in the spiritual, right? Because we too, we can love to report numbers, right? We're part of a denomination that, dare I say, at times feels addicted to numbers with numbers of baptisms, numbers of membership, numbers of church plants. We're always surrounded by numbers, but we have to be wary of our own ecclesiastical statistics that we don't wrongly take pride in them because it's there where that that tinderbox of pride often flares up in the heart. I know it can in my own heart. Perhaps it can in yours as well, which is why I have to remind myself, I seek to remind the elders that God will not ultimately judge the success of the ministry here at UBC on the basis of the size of the church, but on the spiritual vitality of the sheep who are here. We all want UBC to be a church that matters, not just the church that used to matter. We all all want that. But friends, we don't measure the primary growth by physical, by numerical growth, by church growth, but by sort of spiritual gospel growth. And how do you easily quantify when someone has an increased passion for God or a growing fidelity to the truth or a renewed commitment to evangelism? But that's not an easy thing to quantify. Numbers don't help a lot in that regard. And yet those should mark our concerns and our prayers and the things we most value together. But there's another way in which he says true religion is is not physical but spiritual. Notice how he prays for them in verse 16. Peace and mercy be upon them, referring to those who heed this teaching, and upon the Israel of God. All right, now, there we've sort of got two options as we try to understand, okay, who's this Israel of God? Paul could be referring to two distinct groups, to Gentiles who heed his teaching and to Jews who heed his teaching, the Israel of God. Or he could be referring just to one group, where those are both one and the same. And the ESV largely leaves that open for you. But I think it would be highly confusing after arguing that all believers, Jew and Gentile alike, are true sons of Abraham, 326. Therefore, all are equally part of the kingdom of God, 328. That Paul would now erect this wall, a dividing line between Gentiles and Jews. It would just undermine the whole thrust of his book that Gentiles and Jews are all one in Christ. So I think it's better to see this as one group which if you have an NIV is how the NIV takes it, or the Christian Standard Bible, which is a new translation I've been reading and enjoying, which means the Israel of God is Paul's own way of referring to the church, Jew and Gentile alike. Paul's simply making explicit here what is implicit throughout the New Testament, namely the church is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament promises to Israel, which means practically then that God's people are no longer tied to any physical or ethnic people. They're not tied to any nation state with boundaries. God's people are a spiritual people. We're a spiritual people, which means we will have more in common with our African-American sister or with our Iranian brother in Christ 
than we do perhaps with that white neighbor who went to the same schools and shops at the same stores and wears largely the same clothes and votes sort of for the same politician. We have more in common with those who don't look like us if they share Christ in common with us than others who would. And our community together as a church should increasingly reflect that kind of spiritual unity we have in Christ. Which also means we shouldn't, as American evangelicals, align our foreign policy decisions with any notion of a privileged people or nation. All right, so we can choose to support Israel, for example, for political reasons, for, nation, for reasons of national security. But as Christians, we shouldn't assume that we have a theological reason to do so. All right, true religion, he's saying, is physical, not physical rather. It's not physical, but spiritual. There's a second thing I think he wants us to see. True religion is not, it's not hypocritical, but it's truthful. True religion, it's not hypocritical, it's truthful. Verse 13. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law. Right? Paul's noting right there that these who preach the law don't actually practice the law. They're saying one thing but doing another. Right? They're, they're hypocrites. Right? They're play-acting at their own piety. It's like what Jesus says of the scribes and the Pharisees in Matthew 23. For they preach, but they do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. Right? It's, all, it's all a show. It's a, it's a big facade. And you know what? That's what many people think religion is. I don't know if we've talked to non-Christians. Maybe you've come as a non-Christian this morning. Maybe that's what you think religion is. It's just, it's all a facade. And the sad thing is some do prey on others. They prey on their fears. They prey on their insecurities. And they prey on their hopes. And they hope to monetize that through their religion, through their own preaching. But Paul's saying that's actually not a mark of true religion. That's a mark of false religion. Verse 12 They do this only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. And here's where we see the true motivation of these false teachers throughout the whole book. It's that motivation has been somewhat withheld from us, but Paul gives it to us here. And he's saying they're not being honest. They're compelling circumcision and all that the law entails, not because they intend to keep the law, but because they in fact want to avoid persecution. You're wondering, well, how does that help? Well, it's because Judaism was an established religion within the Roman Empire. Okay, it was recognized by the state, and so Jews had some legal protections under Roman law. But Christianity, Christianity is new. Christianity has no legal protections. Christians, at first the Romans were like, oh, it's just the sect of Judaism. But then they saw, actually, no, they hold to a different Messiah. And Jews are trying to kill Christians. These Christians, these are an entirely new group. They've rejected, the Judaism has rejected Jesus. Christians aren't worshiping the Roman gods. And so that made Christian outlaws, really traitors of the Roman government. And that invited persecution. To identify with Christ invited that kind of persecution. Now we want to tread carefully here because Paul's saying their motive was to avoid persecution. I say tread carefully because generally speaking in your Christian lives, it's usually not a good idea to assume motive, 
to assume that we know one's motive as Paul does here, right? Because none of us can see infallibly inside someone else's heart. So as a general practice, especially in our relationships with one another, especially in your own marriage relationships, if your marriage, it is always wise to presume another's motives are good and honorable, right? We only want to draw conclusions from what is clearly communicated to us, not we think you know, might have been inferred in what lay behind those comments. Because when we question another motives, what we're doing is we're questioning their character. We're questioning their intent. And it's one thing to perhaps say in marriage, you know, that thing you did, that thing actually hurt me. We realize it's a whole different thing to say, that thing you did, well, I know you intended to hurt me. This is a big difference. One is impugning character and suggesting intent. And we want to be very slow to jump to such conclusions because we're not God. We don't infallibly know what someone was thinking. We don't know if they felt compelled to do or say something. So we've got to be careful there. But Paul, either because of information we don't have or because as the author inspired by the Spirit, he might have a window into the hearts we don't have, he can say that this is the motive of these false teachers. And he's saying it is not pure It's not a pure motive. And notice the hypocrisy. It doesn't just lead them to different behavior, right? Like getting circumcised. It's leading them, in fact, to different belief. That you must be circumcised in order to be saved. Now, I mention that because I wonder if there are any of you among us, maybe particularly high school students or college students, where you're tempted to alter your theology just a little bit in order to avoid persecution. Maybe the exclusivity of Christ, right? There's only one way to God. Maybe it's on issues of sexuality or gender. Or maybe it's where the Bible would confront the sacred assumptions of science, right? That this world is a closed system, that nothing from the outside can penetrate in, right? From Because where I think where those cultural headwaters are especially strong and moving swiftly... I think the temptation is not to keep rowing that boat against those waters. It's to say, yeah, I'm just going to turn the boat around and I'm going to go with the waters. It's a lot easier to go the other direction. It's too exhausting to keep rowing against the tide. And so we flip and we go with it, much like we've seen politicians do for decades. So I think a good question to ask yourself, are there possibly any aspects of your own theology that are driven more by societal norms than by scripture's norms. How much of your belief system reflects simply what's popular in the streets, right? What's trendy, what's in vogue, as opposed to what's revealed in God's word. It's hard to say that we don't get to define our sexuality, that it's not merely a matter of what's consensual, but what God actually says is permissible. That's a hard thing to say. Or that gender is both given and good. It's not something plastic. It's not malleable. My wife was calling American Airlines to get my son a plane ticket. And the gal on the other end apologized for asking my wife my son's gender. She felt legitimately bad about that. Those are the kind of waters we swim in. And it's hard because our culture won't accept toleration, but it demands complete capitulation on these issues. We've got to bow the knee or else, right? We're demonized, we're vilified, we're we're shamed into submission. 
And I think I just called attention to high school students, to college students in particular, because I think it's there in the classroom where often the pressure to conform is greatest. And any disagreement, any suggestion that there might be another way, well, that's presented as like going back to Jim Crow laws. That's, that's legalized discrimination. That's how it's often discussed. But Paul's saying here, he's saying, listen, don't capitulate. Right? For to give in, and because of the pressures of persecution to to shift your theology ever so slightly may just shift you right over the edge into false religion. He's saying that's to give way to it. So he's saying stand fast in the word even when it results in such persecution. He's saying follow my example. Right? Don't seek to make a good showing in the flesh, but verse 17, he says, be willing to bear the marks of Jesus on your flesh. And that word for mark is is stigmata. It's actually the Greek word for tattoo. You weren't aware. It's a common thing in the ancient world. I'll make no more comments about tattoos for the most part. But Paul's not saying, just to be clear, that he's been inked for Jesus. He's also not saying, as some Roman Catholics do, that there's been sort of supernatural tattoos put all over his body, the marks of Jesus forming like St. Francis of Assisi claimed they formed on him, even, even the nails coming out of his hands. He's not saying that. It's not being inked for Jesus. It's not bearing some supernatural tattoo of Jesus. But rather, Paul's referring here to the real wounds and scars that he received in the service of Jesus. And we know from Acts 14, verse 19, that when Paul traveled through Galatia, when he hit Lystra, that he was stoned. Right? That he was severely hurt, that elsewhere as he traveled through the region, that he received beatings and lashings and was left half dead. And so note what Paul's saying. Paul's saying persecution, not circumcision, is the authentic Christian tattoo. That's what he's saying. Persecution, not circumcision. That's the authentic Christian tattoo. So Paul doesn't say, hey, you know I'm a Christian? Well, check out the fish on the back of my car. I even got one that's, you know, chewing Darwin. He's not saying that. He's, he's not saying, check out the ink on my arm. He's pointing, rather, to his marred and disfigured frame. To the raised scars on his body, to the jagged holes in his flesh, where there used to be flesh. He's saying, that's how you know that I am a Christian and that what I preach is not hypocritical, it is truthful, it is right. Friends, that's what it can look like to follow Jesus. That's what it's looked like for many in the history of Christianity to follow Jesus. You know, in the Paschal Prayer, I mentioned that study that's come out from an Italian uh, center, the Center for Studies on New Religions. And they're saying, hey, listen, as far as we can gather, about 100,000 Christians have been killed because of their Christianity within the last year. And they say, we're sure that number is really quite small because we'll only count things that can be independently verified and corroborated. It made, makes Christians the most persecuted religious group on the planet. You know, so when I was overseas two months ago, I met a Christian still with limps from being badly beaten while he was in an Afghani prison. Or, and I mean, he was frankly the lucky one because we heard of another Saudi convert who, when his family heard, took him out of the desert and he was never heard from again. And that's, brothers, that's what it can look like to follow Christ. So we shouldn't be surprised if we speak and give testimony to Christ and a coworker thinks a little bit less of us. We shouldn't 
be ashamed when we become the butt of a teacher's joke, right? That's always been the way of the cross. Which means as well, as Christians, we need to be honest about the cost of the cross. So I wonder, when you tell people about Jesus, do you tell them about the whole Jesus? About all that he's called them to? Not just that his sacrifice will save them, but the Jesus that also saves them calls them to sacrifice for him. Is that the Jesus you present? Because we like the Jesus who gives. We don't like the Jesus who costs so much. But the real thing, Jesus says, real Christianity, it is costly. And I wonder, are you honest about that with others? Are you honest about that with yourself? I often remind myself, the gospel, what is it? God, man, Christ, response, and cost. Sometimes I just throw that fifth one in to make sure that people understand what it means to follow Jesus. Because being faithful to Jesus, Paul says, will require us at times to bear the marks of Jesus. Persecution is the path for every true Christian. He's not pulling some bait and switch with these Galatians. He's not being hypocritical. Paul is being truthful and honest, and we should too. Third, last thing, true religion He's saying it's not human, but divine. True religion is not human, but divine. Because for these false Jewish teachers, religion, it's not fundamentally about what God's done. They've made it about what we must do, right? Moses has to complete what Jesus left incomplete. It's not just they made religion physical, and not spiritual, but they turned religion into a work of man rather than a grace of God, right? It begins with the work circumcision, and then it's got to continue with more works, all the Mosaic law and the code. And they advocate this because as we've seen, they want to avoid being persecuted for the cross. Verse 12, they want to avoid being persecuted because of the cross. They want to bypass the very thing that Paul bore on his body. And that is the nature of false religion. It bypasses the scandal of the cross. It emphasizes human work because it really doesn't want to look and recognize the divine work. Why is that? Well, friends, it's because the cross says really hard things about us. The cross looks at all and says, I know you may feel like a victim, but you're not a victim. Regardless of what you've been through in your life, you are fundamentally not a victim. You are a perpetrator. You are a co-conspirator in Adam against the Lord Jesus. Right? The, the cross says, yeah, I know the world's messed up. And look in the mirror. You're the reason why. Thus, God's righteous anger rests upon you. We say, oh, but God hates the sin but loves the sinner. That's only half true. It's only half true. We think of the sinner as this lovable chap, right? He's just slipped into something, maybe a little bit naughty. You just have to, just got to pull him back. But the Bible says God doesn't just hate the sin, but he hates the sinner. Psalm 5, 5, God hates all evildoers. And the Bible is really clear that we're all evildoers. In the Bible, the wrath of God rests against sin, Romans 1, 20, 18 to 23, against sin and the sinner, finish Romans 1. The cross says, hey, why do bad things happen to good people? That's the wrong question, because there are no good people. That's what the cross says every time we stare at it. No good people, save one. 
God's only begotten son. And what did we do to this one good person that the Lord sent us in his kindness and love? We murdered him cruelly and viciously. That's the scandal of the cross. That's what these Jews wanted to avoid. That's what in our flesh, if we admit it for what it is, that's what we all want to avoid. And sometimes we struggle to see why it's a scandal because we think of cross and we think of nice golden pendants on on dainty necks or we think of Renaissance pieces by Raphael where Jesus hangs as if suspended by, by angels in these sanitized scenes. We can't even begin to appreciate the horror and the shock of that word. Crucifixion was a word that never was mentioned. It was unutterable in Roman society. It was reserved for the dregs of society. It was reserved for those who had received a divine curse. And to mention the name was, in effect, almost to call that curse upon yourself. To say, like Paul, that he boasts in the cross, that he boasts in it, and that the world has been crucified to me and I to the world, that's an unthinkable thing to utter. It might be like a preacher coming in to a black congregation in the segregated South and saying, God forbid that I should take pride in anything except for the lynching of the Lord Jesus. Did he just say lynching? The lynching of the Lord Jesus? Everything about it was offensive. It was shameful. And yet the cross goes on to say that this dead... This death, this, this, this blood and this mangled body of Jesus hanging there, it's saying that was necessary. It was not an accident. And it was not just some model of self-giving love. It was necessary because your life, all of your accomplishments, all of your achievements have the aroma of a septic tank before God. That's it. Rank and foul. The gospel is offensive to liberal-minded people because it says, you know what? Yeah, you really are that bad. And the only way to be saved is through Jesus. And it's offensive to conservative-minded people because it says to them that, yeah, you good people are really as bad as those bad people. We all want a respectable Jesus. We want an enlightened teacher. We want someone who respects our wishes and doesn't trample upon our modern sensibilities. You know, we want a sort of Sherpa guide who points us down the path. But the cross doesn't let it. doesn't let us believe those things. It's offensive because it stands in opposition to every system of self-salvation. Every single one. And that's vividly displayed in how Paul refers to these Judaizers. What does he say in verse 13? He says, they boast... In your flesh. Remember what the Judaizers are saying the Gentiles must do to their flesh. He's saying that's what they boast in. And if you think about that for a moment, that is a hideous image. It's a grotesque image. To boast in a heap of withered and rotting, need I say anymore. A grotesque image. And yet Paul says that's exactly where human religion leaves you. Boasting and that kind of thing. But divine religion takes you to the cross. Divine religion takes you to that place on that day when the earth, when the earth shuddered in protest. When the sun held back its light. 
where the cemeteries began to give up their dead and where God gave notice to Satan that his lease upon this earth is running up. It is coming due. So you wish to see God's wrath against sin and the sinner? Look to the cross. Do you wish equally to see God's love for the sinner? You look to the cross. At the foot of the cross, all of us stand as sinners. The only question becomes, will we be those condemned for boasting in the equivalent of some surgical waste? Or forgiven? By trusting in the flesh of Jesus, the one broken and bruised for us. You see, that single event, that event of the cross, that event in history presents all of us, all of us here with the decision. Right? What are we going to do about it? Because it makes universal and eternal claims. And Paul says in verse 16, all who walk by this rule, meaning all who understand that true religion is not physical, but spiritual. It's not hypocritical, but it's truthful. It's not human, but divine. And all those who in faithfulness to Jesus are willing to bear the marks of Jesus, he says of those, conditionally of those, that peace and mercy, the peace and mercy of God be upon them. You know, so I asked you at the beginning, what, what event has significantly shaped your own life? Because we all have them. But Paul's trying to draw our attention out of merely the decades that might comprise our lives. And he's wanting us to look back much broader and much bigger. And he understands that the cross is the fundamental event of human history, of your lives and of mine. For the cross reveals that our fundamental problem is not outward, but it is inward. And the cross reveals the solution. The solution is not within us. The solution is outside of us. False religion looks internally to produce external change. But true religion looks externally to produce internal change. And so Paul's saying to reject the cross, to reject the only hope God has given for mankind, that's to live, all the way back in chapter 1, verse 4, that's to live according to the present evil age. But to accept it, Paul's saying that's to become a part of the new creation, verse 15. Right? The cross, more than any other event, more than any other event in your life, tells you and me, it tells us both who we are and it tells us where we're headed. How you understand that event on that fateful day tells you most fundamentally who you are and where you are headed. All right, so what does the cross say about you? About how you truly are? As you leave this morning, don't leave without reflecting on what the cross says about where you're finally headed. Let's pray. Oh God, we're thankful for Paul. He doesn't sugarcoat it. He doesn't pretend everything is okay when he knows that heaven and hell hang in the balance. God, we're thankful for the clarity Lord, and for the starkness 
of his words, of his admonitions, of his warnings. God, we trust they are given to us because we too need them. We need to be reminded of that central event that defines who we are and that we would not walk away from it. Lord, that we would not tweak it, that we would not reinterpret it to become more palatable. Oh God, help us to remain faithful to the message of the cross that you have saved us by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and not on any account of what we have done. Oh God, help us to boast in that truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.